Hello and welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Uh, the first week of December is already closed. We're recording this on the, the 9th. So thank you all for joining us. It's hard to believe the year is going to come quickly to a close. Brent, we wrote uh, our annual year-end review on the blog this week to AEI.ag. That's always a lot of fun for us. When we wrap this episode up, Brent, I want you to share the story that jumps out to you the most, and I'll share the one that jumps out to me, but encourage everyone to go over and read that site. But the one article we want to talk about first here was uh, on farmland taxes. And as a rule of thumb, when there is an uncertainty that's pretty vague or pretty open-ended, like is the government going to raise taxes? And you have a scenario where there's just constant chatter or conversation or ramblings or musings or frustrations about the situation. It's a recipe for chaos and decision-making. So an open-ended uncertainty with just never-ending chatter about it really is causes frustration for the decision-maker. And so We've identified this farmland situation as just that. There is just nonstop coverage about it, even though you know it kind of got kicked off talking about this infrastructure bill. How are we going to pay for the infrastructure bill? Well, we'll change some of these taxes on capital gains, and that will help pay for it. Well, we've passed that bill, and taxes so far haven't been raised. So we wrote an article, and I want to set it up high level. And Brent, you can dive into it a little more. But it's the idea of there are estate taxes. There are capital gains, um, and those are two different types of taxes. But within capital gains, there's this idea of stepped-up basis. And I think there's just been a lot of confusion about all of those and how they work or don't work. Yes, <laughs> taxes are super complicated always, and they're open to a lot of misinterpretation. And the interesting thing is that I understand why they want to change the stepped-up basis rules because that's one where if you pass an asset that you bought a long, long time ago and it's undergone significant appreciation, you can pass that, the heir can sell it immediately, not pay uh, any capital gains on it, so it's escaped capital gains taxation. Of course, it would not escape the inheritance tax. Uh, so, the, you know, you can see how they would work kind of in tandem. Those two taxes uh, could work in tandem, but getting it just right is really complicated and leads to a lot of fighting uh, by everybody. And uh, my prediction early on when all of it started is that the only thing they would be able to agree on was increasing expenditures and they would never be able to get to a consensus on increasing taxes. And that's pretty much proved to be the case. I mean, you know, even within the majority, there's enough division in there that these things start to get complicated and putting in new taxes is very difficult. So there's an open forecast network question about this. Encourage you to go, you know, see what the consensus is, but also read this article. But one of the things I wanted to really uh, point out here is um, it's always uncomfortable and undesirable if we hear that the, the taxes might be going up. But I also think it's really worth thinking about what are doomsday scenarios and what are inconveniences. Sometimes these outcomes aren't uniform, right? These pain is not uniform. They all might cause you pain, but there are some that are going to be way, way more painful. And one of these 
that I think has been interesting to see play out is capital gains, excuse me, stepped up basis and the recognition of capital gains. And, you know, there are a lot of folks who want to protect stepped up basis. And I'm not going to wade into that debate, but just want to point out that, you know, stepped up basis is really a concern if you want to sell that asset, you know, right upon inheritance or right after the death of and then the pass through. So a lot of times in ag, we say, well, we want to keep the farmland and the family. Well, stepped up basis isn't going to be a vehicle that's all that important to operations who really want to continue this in perpetuity. Exactly. Uh, in, fact, in fact, you know, the billionaires who have all this art, who they want to pass it as soon as they, they pass away, that's the shelter or the vehicle they're using for maybe these undesirable loopholes that they're exploiting. The thing that I think is a doomsday scenario, and I won't put uh, too many words in Brent's mouth, but that I think concern us a lot is the recognition of capital gains. And if we change how we recognize capital gains, it becomes really complicated. And the one of them is, do we recognize capital gains at death? Or maybe we recognize it even more frequently, maybe on an annual basis. And one, capital gains are more broad than the farm economy. So it's going to impact everything. But you can start to re- realize how hard it would be and how challenging it would be to recognize capital gains when the economic activity of maybe selling that asset and capturing the cash, when those two things become disconnected. That to me is unbelievably difficult to think about from a cash flow, from a taxation. I mean, there are just unlimited uh, challenges with that, but that was an idea that was floated around. It's this idea of, do we recognize capital gains on an annual basis or maybe at death? And then you take the death situation of recognizing capital gains then and the inheritance tax on top of each other. Um, that to me is um, much, much more concerning. I think that's where we really have to keep our eye on is what's going on in that space. Yeah, and of course, that led to you know the realization that it was awfully complicated, and you can see you know average people having to send a check in every year for the appreciation in their you know stock market portfolio, or maybe getting a refund every year if it declines. Um, so they quickly left that and knew that that would cause a lot of angst probably at the ballot box and went to well we'll just get you know the billionaires and that didn't go very far either so changing taxes is really difficult check out that article i think it's pretty interesting so one story we'll share that highlights how complicated it is Uh, george steinbrenner the famous or well-known owner of the new york yankees passed away in 2010 and this was a notable year for those who really spend a lot of time in estate taxings is because there were no estate taxes that year. And so it is estimated that his estate avoided having to pay somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 to $600 million in taxes. And so that was the headline that, you know, ran wild. This idea that these billionaires got away without having to pay all these taxes. But lesser known is in 2010, there was a quirk where there were also no stepped up bases. And so his family dodged the estate tax component, but they also didn't get stepped up bases, which means that if the family ever goes to sell the um, Yankees, they're going to be stuck with that original purchase price, which is somewhere in the neighborhood, I think of $10 million. Um, So the takeaway here is that if they ever go to sell the team, they're going to face a huge capital gains liability. And so that's going to be, um, now you have a scenario where they have to recognize capital gains, 
without selling the team, that's where we get to this complication of, of all of a sudden they have to recognize all those capital gains next year. How are they going to raise the cash to pay that? And so taxes have a lot of moving pieces. With taxes, there's usually never one lever that's only being pulled. There's usually all sorts of levers being pulled. And right now it's estate taxes, um, capital gains, and stepped up basis that are in full discussion and debate. So Brent, I want to kick yeah. this over. Go ahead. Well, and that's a good point there. So had they uh, left the stepped up basis in that year, they would have gotten off with tremendous uh, deal and the fact that he had to die to get it, which is usually not a good situation. But, uh, you know, so that's where all that stuff kind of works together. It's really important. You start monkeying with stuff, you can really get things screwed up. And uh, I think, you know, calmer heads and uh, just the reality that it's going to be a big lift to push that anything through. And I thought all along, the only thing that would be palatable economically would be to push through a tax on corporations who are um, generally um, less sympathetic, I guess, in the public's eyes, but at the same time have a lot more lobbyists. So, you know, who, who knows where that'll even go through as well. Thus far, not a whole lot of changes. So we'll see how that continues to to evolve in the coming years. So, um, yeah, long long implications for some of this. So, Brent, we'll let you kick this over and talk a little bit about uh, the crop budget um, article you wrote this week that posted this week. Yeah, so we've been doing some analysis uh, of both the, the year that was and the year that's to come, and we looked at produce crop budgets for corn and soybeans there's been a lot of discussion about you know will the high fertilizer prices result in a lot fewer corn acres will how are farmers going to approach this next year and so we just took their budgets and did some simple analysis and what you see is that at the end of the day um the bottom line conditions look a lot like they did last year. In fact, the contribution margin heading into uh, 2022 appears to be just a little bit higher than it was last year. Why is that the case? Well, crop prices higher than they were at the time those budgets were made the previous year. And both on average, show a slight economic loss in the Purdue data, which is not uncommon. Remember, these are true economic profits. So when you see a small loss, it's uh, usually not something to get real concerned about where we get concerned as, you know, those years where it dips down into the, you know, negative hundred, $200 an acre range. So then we kind of looked at um, what had happened to costs and why things were different. And, you know, the initial estimate that Purdue put out showed fertilizer expenses increasing 66%, total variable costs up 24%. Now, when you get into that data, uh, we think there's still a little bit more room for that to run up uh, on corn because uh, the their assumptions on nitrogen were uh, only 52 cents a unit. And uh, if you've priced nitrogen, Today, you know, it's quite a bit higher than that. So, you know, I think there's still room for those corn costs to go up. What surprised me a little bit is when we looked at the soybean expenses, 
they're also up quite a bit. Uh, corn at that time were up 24%. Soybeans are up 21%. Again, a big portion of it being fertilizer. And this is where it gets interesting because in some places you get by with not very much fertilizer on soybeans. Other places require quite a bit. So that's, I think, kind of where we get into, you know, where might this cost driven switching come into play? But as we go down and look at it, the thing that I thought was the most interesting is a look and compare the revenue and say, okay, so corn revenue in this budget compared to 2021 was up 18%. Soybean revenue only up 5%. So what that's telling us is that corn relatively more attractive. Okay. Now, is, is it enough on the cost side? Well, if you look at the corn to bean variable cost ratio, which I haven't seen anybody else doing, and I think is a kind of an interesting way to look at it, that is 1.79. In 2021, it was 1.74. In other words, corn variable costs, soybean variable costs were, you know, 175% of soybeans if they're 175. That's a 2% increase. So in other words, what we're saying is that the revenues are a lot higher for corn. The costs are a little bit higher uh, based on those numbers. Now, like I said, I think we can put in some different numbers on those costs and get a little bit more accurate fertilizer number. And there's some other numbers I thought on crop protection and other things they might want to change you know the likely change in the new update but it's pretty clear right now that the price ratios are more favorable than the cost ratios are unfavorable for corn so in, in other words corn revenues have moved up quite a bit yes costs are higher but they're not as much higher relative to soybeans as one might think and if that were to hold, it would suggest, you know, corn can be awfully, awfully competitive for acres um, going into uh, planting next year. But as we know, these numbers can, will, and do change frequently. My bottom line was that, you know, at the end of the day, it does not appear to me that there is enough difference in these numbers to suggest that all the farmers can move to one side of the boat. Um, in, in other words, I think something similar to what we saw last year is probably the most likely case unless something changes even more drastically. And so costs aren't that much higher that everybody's going to go away from corn and the profits aren't that much higher for corn that everybody's going to go to corn. So I kind of look for something similar to what we saw based on these numbers. I think it's a really great point, Brent. I think there's been a lot of focus on the changing of the costs. Um, and especially on social media, a lot of focus on producers are going to do this because of changes in costs. And when you look at the revenue, the revenue is probably the bigger story here, um, especially when you think about this and producers need to get their own numbers and their own budget projections. And the other thing that I'll mention is 
it really depends on how you measure the time periods that you're comparing. So a lot of cases, uh, producers who are getting the biggest sticker shock from fertilizer and in, heading into 2022 are the ones who had 10 year low prices last fall. And so uh, these Purdue budgets would have had a little bit of that higher fertilizer price um, already built in. So we'll see how this plays out, but uh, important to keep in mind, no single expense is probably gonna ultimately drive the acreage decision for producers going into 2022. Yeah, it's funny you start asking people, you know, what do you think your neighbor's going to do? Oh, they're going to plant a lot of soybeans, you know, costs are higher. What are you going to do? I'm going to plant a lot of corn. (laughs) So that's why I get a little skeptical that, uh, you know, I just, again, I I think the kinds of massive shifts that some people are talking about, I'm not nearly so convinced, But, but we'll see. It's too early, I think. Yeah. So, Brandon, I think this is called the social desirability bias when we convey one thing that we think is going to happen in society, but we might actually do something a little slightly different. Uh, when we, so, it's important to. Uh, I, I wish somebody would go out and do that survey. Um, they would go out and ask farmers what they think their neighbors are going to do, and then they turn out and ask what they're going to do. I do think this is a year where you'd capture some very interesting potential results because I think <laughs> everyone's quickly to comment about what their neighbors are going to do, but they're quietly at home uh, writing down what they're going to do and it might not completely track. So Brent, to wrap this up, what was the big headline from 2021 that really stood out to you? Well, it, first of all, it just seems a little bit crazy to me that we're already to Christmas. But I guess for me, this was a really good year for farm economics. And, and, uh, this is the best year that I've seen for a long time. And I think you can see that feeding into land auctions. You can see it feeding into equipment auctions pretty much everywhere you look. So just the overall profitability of the great year, uh, of profitability to me is the number one story. Uh, there's some other really interesting stories, but on balance, I'd say that that was, and it was a good change. We haven't had one of these for a while. Last year was okay. Driven largely by government payments this year, just really good profitability. One thing that stood out to me is ag economists and me and, and print you as well. I've been able to stand up, give a presentation for the last 15 years and say the outlook for agricultural demand is positive because China's buying soybeans and ethanol is going to corn. That, that's been a pretty easy thing to say. Um, what's interesting is that's still all true, but you got to move players around a little bit. So now China is buying corn and soybeans is going to biodiesel. And so it's been interesting in 2021 to see how that narrative flipped around a little bit. I was also um, reflecting on asset valuations. Um, remember it was, uh, we talked about this for farmland, but it's everywhere. And I think sort of the animal spirits really captured the gold in early 2021 when the game stock valuation situation went absolutely crazy. We reminded readers then to go look at the history of Piggly Wiggly. That was one of the original big short squeezes. Um, and that was in the, I think the 19, uh, 30s or the 1920s. I don't remember, but it was a grocery store chain. So you can go, uh, I think the guy's name is Saunder. Uh, so uh, Clarence Saunder, I'm, I'm stretching really deep in the imagination there, but um, a very 
you know, larger than life guy and he had a company and there was a short squeeze on and he got a literally a suitcase of cash and he hit the Wall Street to, to bust the short squeeze and it did not happen and he went bankrupt. Um, but, you know, short squeezes happen and we saw that with GameStop. It's been interesting to see that play out. I want to wrap this up by really encouraging you all to step back for a few minutes and say, what were the big stories from my year in 2021? Write those down, share it with your family members or your colleagues, um, but write it down and then put it aside for future reflection. I, I commented to someone earlier, it's like fine wine, it gets better with age. And so you might see this as a cost today, but I guarantee a year from now or five years from now or 10 years from now, that will be an invaluable um, piece of memory that you've captured uh, and your memory will maybe not be as accurate as you initially projected it to be. Um, but writing it down will be a good way for you to really step back into those shoes and remember what was 2021. You can share that with your kids and the next generation. So that's a really powerful exercise for you to take advantage of this time of the year. I think so too. I think it's useful at all times, but you know, this is a good time of year to, to do that. And Boy, a lot of things happened this last year. Last two, three years have been wild. And uh, that famous quote you put in the article by Lennon about how does it go? It's uh, sometimes. uh, There are decades uh, where nothing happens, and there are weeks where decades happen. Yeah. 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 And, you know, the last few years have been a wild ride across the board. Um, and, you know, I think part of the thing David's encouraging you on your reflection right now is to help you become better decision makers. And that's what we're really trying to help our subscribers with is, you know, get the information, do the reflection, um, think deeply to improve your decision making over time. And uh, we think it'll pay huge, huge rewards over the long run. Well, thanks so much for joining us this week. We're drafting a bunch of new Forecast Network questions for the new year. So stay tuned for those. Um, A lot of arm wrestling going on as to how we uh, frame these up and write them. Um, Unfortunately, there are some questions that are important, but we just don't have a good way of writing them because the uncertainty is so ambiguous. We'll add some comments and some articles about that as well. So in the meantime, stay curious. We'll catch you all later. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.